Hello, welcome to another episode of Highlighters and All-Nighters. I'm your host, Miss Huber. This week, we are finishing Tuck Everlasting. I am on chapter 25. I'm looking at page 127. And the Tucks, Winnie's darling Tucks, have just left Tree Gap. The first week of August was long over. And now, the autumn was still some weeks away. There was a feeling that the year had begun its downward arc, that the wheel was turning again, slowly now, but soon to go faster, turning once more in its changeless sweep of change. Winnie, standing at the fence in front of the touch-me-not cottage, could hear the new note in the voices of the birds. Whole clouds of them lifted, chattering into the sky above the wood, and then settled, only to lift again. Across the road, goldenrod was coming into bloom. I'm going to infer that that is some kind of flower or plant. And an early drying milkweed had opened its rough pod, exposing a host of downy-headed seeds. As she watched, one of these detached itself into a sudden breeze and sailed sedately off while others leaned from a pod as if to observe its departure. Winnie dropped down cross-legged on the grass. Two weeks had gone by since the night of the storm, the night of May Tuck's escape, and May had not been found. There was no trace of her at all, or of Tuck, or Miles, or Jessie. Winnie was profoundly grateful for that, but she was also profoundly tired. It had been a trying two weeks. For the hundredth time, she reviewed it all, how the constable had come into the cell room after she had settled herself on the cot, how he had let down a shutter over the window to keep out the rain, how then he had stood over her, as she hunched under the blanket, her breath heavy, trying to look as large as possible, and how finally he had gone away and not come back till morning. But she had not dared to sleep for fear she would kick off the blanket and give herself away, give the tucks away unwillingly. So she had lain there, pulse thudding, eyes wide open. She would never forget the rattle of the rain on the jailhouse roof, or the smell of wet wood, or or the darkness that had saved them all, or how difficult it was not to cough. She wanted to cough as soon as it occurred to her that she mustn't, and she passed a long hour trying to swallow away the tickle that perversely constricted her throat, and she would never forget the crash outside that made her heart race that she could not investigate that did not, and did not understand till morning when on the way home she saw that the gallows had blown over in the wind. But, oh! It made her tremble still to remember the constable's face when he found her. She had first she had heard first a bustling in the front of the jail and smelled fresh coffee and had sat up stiff with apprehension and then the inner door opened the door she now saw which separated the office from the pair of cells and in the light that streamed before him the constable appeared carrying a breakfast tray. He was whistling cheerfully. He came up to the barred door of her cell and looked in and his whistling died on his lips, as if it had run down and needed to be wound up again. But this comical astonishment lasted for a moment only, and then his face flushed red with anger. Winnie had sat on the cot, eyes downcast, feeling very small and very like a criminal. In fact, he was soon shouting that if she were older, he'd have to keep her there, that it was a crime what she had done. She was an accomplice. She had helped a murderer escape. She was, in fact, a criminal. But too young to be punished by the law. Worse luck, he told her, for she badly needed punishing. She was released then into the custody of her mother and father, and these new words, accomplice and custody, chilled her blood. Over and over they asked her, shocked at first, and then wistful. Why had she 
done such a thing? Why? She was their daughter. They had trusted her. They tried to bring her up properly with a true sense of right and wrong. They didn't understand. And finally, she had sobbed the only truth there was into her mother's shoulder, the only explanation. The tucks were her friends. She had done it because, in spite of everything, she loved them. This of all things her family understood, and afterward they drew together staunchly round her. It was hard for them in the village. Winnie knew it was, and the knowledge gave her pain, for they were proud, and she had shamed them. Still, this side of the affair was not without its benefits, at least for Winnie. And though she was confined to the yard indefinitely and could go nowhere, not even with her mother or her grandmother, the other children wandered by to look at her, to talk to her through the fence. They were impressed by what she had done. She was a figure of romance to them now, not romance like love romance. Um, okay, so she was a figure of romance to them now, where before she'd been too neat, too prissy almost, too clean to be a real friend. So romance in this way means almost like heroic. Anyways, let's continue on. So Winnie sighed and plucked at the grass around her ankles. School would open soon. It wouldn't be so bad. In fact, she thought as her spirits lifted, this year it might be rather nice. And then two things happened. First of all, the toad appeared out of the weeds. On her side of the road this time, it bounced out of a clover of old, oh, out of a cover, sorry, out of a cover of old dandelion leaves and landed plop just beyond the fence. If she had reached her hand through the bars, she could have touched it. And next, a large brown dog with easy gait and dangling tongue came loping down the road toward them. He stopped opposite the fence and looked at Winnie with a friendly swish of his tail. And then he saw the toad. At once, he began to bark, eyes bright. Yeah, I'm not doing that for you guys. Sorry, you can use your imagination. So, dog's barking. He pranced up, his hindquarters leaping independently from side to side, nose close to the toad, his voice shrill with enthusiasm. Don't, cried Winnie, leaping to her feet and flapping arms. Go away, dog. Stop that. Go away. Shoot. The dog paused. He looked up at Winnie's frantic dancing and then looked at the toad, who had pressed down close to the the dirt, eyes tight shut. It was too much for him. He began to bark again and reached out a long paw. Oh, cried Winnie. Oh, don't do that. Leave my toad alone. And before she had time to realize what she was doing, she bent, reached through the bars, and snatched the toad up and away from harm, dropping it on the grass inside the fence. A feeling of revulsion swept through her. While the dog whined, Pawing uselessly at the fence, she stood rigid, staring at the toad, wiping her hand again and again on the skirt of her dress. Then she remembered the actual feel of the toad, and the revulsion passed. She knelt and touched the skin on its back. It was rough and soft, both at once, and cool. Winnie stood up and looked at the dog. He was waiting outside the fence, his head on one side, peering at her longingly. It's my toad, Winnie told him, so you better leave it alone. And then, on impulse, she ran. She turned and ran into the cottage, up to her room, to the bureau drawer, where she had hidden Jessie's bottle, the bottle of water from the spring. In a moment, she was back again. The toad still squatted where she had dropped it. The dog still waited at the fence. Winnie pulled out the cork from the mouth of the bottle, and kneeling, she poured the precious water very slowly and carefully over the toad. The dog watched this operation, and then, yawning, he was suddenly bored. 
He turned and loped away back down the road to the village. When he picked up the toad and held it for a long time without the least disgust in the palm of her hand, it sat calmly, blinking, and the water glistened on its back. The little bottle was empty now. It lay on the grass at Winnie's feet. But if all of this was true, there was more water in the wood. There was plenty more, just in case, when she was 17. If she should decide, there was more water in the wood. Winnie smiled, then she stooped and put her hand through the fence and set the toad free. There, she said, you're safe forever. All right, I am looking at the epilogue. So this is the last section of the book. It's almost like another chapter. Um, I'm on page 134, and the toad has just been granted immortality courtesy of Winnie Foster. So go Winnie, go Toad. All right, let's finish the book, you guys. We're in the home stretch. All right, so the sign said, Welcome to Tree Gap, but it was hard to believe that this was really Tree Gap. The main street hadn't changed so very much, but there were many other streets now crossing the main street. The road itself was blacktopped. There was a white line painted down its center. May and Tuck, on the seat of a clattering wooden wagon, bumped slowly into Tree Cat behind the fat old horse. They had seen continuous change and were accustomed to it, but here it seemed shocking and sad. Look, said Tuck. Look, May. Ain't that where the wood used to be? It's gone. Not a stick or stump left. And her cottage. That's gone, too. It was very hard to recognize anything, but from the little hill, what had which had once lain outside the village and was now very much a part of it, they thought they could figure things out. Yes, said May, that's where it was, I do believe. Of course, it's been so long since we were here, I can't tell for certain. There is a gas station there now. A young man in greasy overalls, or sorry, coveralls, was polishing the windshield of a wide and rusty Hudson automobile. As May and Tuck rolled past, the young man grinned and said to the driver of the Hudson, who lounged at the wheel, Looky there, in from the country for a big time, and they chuckled together. May and Tuck clattered in onto the village proper. The village proper means like the main part of the village. Uh, past a Catholic mixture of houses. So here, if you notice, the Catholic is lowercase, so not Catholic in the way that we think of Catholic. Past a Catholic mixture of houses, which soon gave way to shops and other places of business. A hot dog stand, a dry cleaner, a pharmacy, a five and ten. Another gas station, a tall white frame building with a pleasant veranda, the Tree Gap Hotel, family dining, easy rates, the post office, beyond that, the jailhouse, but a larger jailhouse now painted brown with an office for the county clerk. A black and white police car was parked in front with a red glass searchlight on its roof and a radio antenna like a buggy whip fastened to the windshield. May glanced at the jailhouse, but looked away quickly. See beyond there, she said, pointing. That diner? Let's stop there and get a cup of coffee, all right? All right, said Tuck. Maybe they'll know something. Inside, the diner gleamed with chrome and smelled like linoleum and ketchup. May and Tuck took seats on a a rumbling on rumbling swivel stools at the long counter. The counterman emerged from the kitchen at the rear and sized them up expertly. They looked all right. A little queer, maybe. Their clothes, especially. But honest. He slapped a cardboard menu down in front of them and leaned on the foaming orangeade cooler. You folks from off, he asked. Yep, said Tuck, just passing through. Sure, said the counterman. Say, said Tuck cautiously, fingering the menu. 
Didn't there used to be a wood once down the other side of town? Sure, said the counterman. Had a big electrical storm, though, about three years ago now, or thereabouts. A big tree got hit by lightning, split right down the middle, caught fire and everything. Tore up the ground, too. Had to bulldozer all out. Oh, said Tuck. He and May exchanged glances. Coffee, please, said May. Black, for both of us. Sure, said the counterman. Well, he says sure a lot. Okay, so maybe he'll have an extensive vocabulary later. He took the menu away, poured coffee into the thick pottery mugs, and leaned again on the RJ cooler. Used to be a freshwater spring in that wood, said Tuck boldly, sipping his coffee. Don't know nothing about that, said the counterman. Had to bulldozer all out, like I say. Oh, said Tuck. Afterward, while he and May uh, while May was shopping for supplies, Tuck went back through the town on foot, back the way they had come, out to the little foot hair hill. There were houses there now, and a feeding grain store, but on the far side of the hill, inside a rambling iron fence, was a cemetery. Tuck's heart quickened. He had noticed the cemetery on the way in. May had seen it, too. They had not spoken about it, but both knew it might hold other answers. Tuck straightened his old jacket. He passed through an archway of a raw iron of raw iron curlicues and paused, squinting at the weedy rows of gravestones. And then, far over to the right, he saw a tall monument, once no doubt imposing, but now tipped slightly sideways. On it was carved one name, Foster. Slowly, Tuck turned his footsteps toward the monument and saw, as he approached, that there were other smaller markers all around it, a family plot. And then his throat closed, for it was there. He had wanted it to be there. But now that he saw it, he was overcome with sadness. He knelt and read the inscription. In loving memory, Winifred Foster Jackson, dear wife, dear mother, 1870 to 1948. So, said Tuck to himself, two years. She's been gone two years. He stood up and looked around, embarrassed, trying to clear the lump from his throat there was no one to see him. The cemetery was very quiet. In the branches of a willow behind him, a red-winged blackbird chirped. Tuck wiped his eyes hastily. Then he straightened his jacket again and drew up his hand in a brief salute. Good girl, he said aloud, and then he turned and left the cemetery, walking quickly. Later, as he and May rolled out of Tree Gap, May said softly without looking at him, She's gone? Tuck nodded. She's gone, he answered. There was a long moment of silence between them, and then May said, Poor Jessie. He knowed it, though, said Tuck. At least he knowed she wasn't coming. We all knowed that a long time ago. Just the same, said May. She sighed, and then she sat up a little straighter. Well, where to now, Tuck? No need to come back here no more. That's so, said Tuck. Let's just head on out this way. We'll locate something. All right, said May, and then she put a hand on his arm and pointed. Look out for that toad! Tuck had seen it, too. He reined in the horse and climbed down from the wagon. The toad was squatting in the middle of the road, quite unconcerned. In the other lane, a pickup truck rattled by, and against the breeze it made, the toad shut its eyes tightly, but it did not move. Tuck waited till the truck had passed, and then he picked up the toad and carried it to the weeds along the road's edge. Dern fool thing must think it's going to live forever, he said to May. And soon they were rolling on again, leaving Tree Gap behind, and as they went, the tinkling little melody of a box drifted out behind them and was lost at last far down the road. 
All right, that was Tuck Everlasting. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I think it's left a lot of food for thought for you. I'm excited to hear your reactions and thoughts, so be prepared to talk about how you feel when we have our class meet. This has been another episode of Highlighters and All-Nighters. I am your host, Miss Huber, signing off. Bye!